RPC Radio. Hello and welcome to Taxing Matters, your one-stop audio shop for all things tax, brought to you by RPC. My name is Alice Kemp and I will be your guide as we explore the sometimes hostile and ever-changing landscape that is the world of tax law and tax disputes. Taxing Matters brings you a fortnightly roadmap to guide you and your business through this labyrinth. In case any of you miss any crucial information or just want some bedtime reading, there is a full transcript of this and indeed every episode of Taxing Matters on our website at www.rpc.co.uk forward slash taxingmatters. Long-time listeners of Taxing Matters may recall delving into the thorny issue of the Cummex scandal with Bloomberg journalist Donald Griffin. But that was a long time ago, and much water has passed under the bridge since then. So what has been happening in Cummex, and why does it still matter? Joining us today to both take a trip down memory lane and to bring us up to speed with all of the latest developments UK and beyond is David Stern, a barrister from Five St Andrews Hill Chambers, where he is the joint head of their business crime and financial regulation offering. David has acted in most, if not all, of the high-profile acronym-rich cases in financial crime. LIBOR, Forex rigging, FISMA, dealing with an array of equally acronym-rich investigators, DOJ, CFTC, FCA, HMRC and SFO, to name but a few. But much more interestingly, David is a ski mountaineer and has, in this capacity, traversed the entire of the European Alps, including once doing a 500-kilometre race across the Alpine region, a feeling which must not be entirely dissimilar to working on Cummex Matters. David, welcome to Taxi Matters. Thank you for that warm introduction, Alice. It certainly has been a challenge navigating the Cummex world. David, we probably need to start with a refresher. What exactly is Cummex and why are we talking about it? Cummex is a peculiar dividend arbitrage trading practice that focused on multiple tax rebate claims. In effect, what it did was it took advantage of a weakness in the European tax system. If you like, there was a leaky pipe. The epicentre of this trading practice was, in fact, in London. And in order to understand what that weakness in the tax system was, you need to understand a little bit about dividends and the dividend record date. In essence, it took advantage of time between executing a trade and its settlement around the dividend payment date. What it did was create what appeared to be two owners of the same shares at the same time, giving the impression that each was entitled to the withholding tax rebate under the national laws of its own country. This was done on a large scale to such a degree that in various European countries, the estimated loss to the Treasury amounts to some 55 billion euros which is a chunk of change. This has led to multiple civil proceedings in the UK, in in New York and across Europe, various regulatory sanctions and indeed criminal proceedings against both individuals and certain participating banks, which have led to criminal convictions in Germany. Those European investigations are intensifying. Further investigations are ongoing and we know that individuals are being extradited to face criminal proceedings in Europe. And that's why we're here today. For those that are involved in managing or running regulated entities, 
that may or may not have been involved in CUMEX trading or a form of dividend arbitrage trading at the time, it will be necessary to look at very carefully the extent of that trading and the implications for that entity. The question of does it work was probably one of the more hotly contested between prosecutors and defendants. So instead, I'll ask, how did it operate? Well, the best way of looking at this, Alice, is to take a quick example of a traditional CUMEX trade. What it involved was effectively the seven steps to heaven, as I describe them. What you need is three parties. You need someone who owns the shares themselves, which might be a traditional institution that would hold shares. Let's say, for in this example, it would be in a German car manufacturer. You need a short seller. That's someone who doesn't own the share, but is willing to enter into a trade with a third party, the buyer, of shares that he, at that point in time, doesn't own. But he's going to borrow the shares in order to facilitate that trade. So you've got three parties, the owner or the lender of the share, the short seller and the buyer. The first step that would take place is just before the dividend date, the short seller would enter into a sale agreement of that car manufacturer's shares with the buyer. What that does is it allows him to make payment of the share value, which would include a price for the dividend. Because remember, the buyer is buying the day before the dividend record date. Therefore, he's assuming that he's getting the come dividend value. In other words, the share with the benefit of the dividend. Having done that, he would be in the position of seeking to make a reclaim of that dividend withholding tax, which in typical terms would be 25% of the value from the German tax authority clearing system called Clearstream. The dividend compensation payment would be paid across to the buyer's custodian bank. That would generate the necessary certificate, which would allow the reclaim to be made. But of course, the share needs to actually be fulfilled. And so the share would be borrowed by the short seller. The German tax authority would also get a reclaim from the original owner of the share, because remember, he actually held on to that share at the relevant date. And it's because it takes several days for this share to be actually closed out that the central clearinghouse would have seen what appeared to be two owners of the same share on the relevant date. And this then created a scenario where tax, which had only ever been potentially paid once, has actually been reclaimed on more than one occasion. You've described these parties involved in a CUMEX trade, but who were the businesses and individuals that were assuming these roles? If we look at the wider marketplace, it's a highly complex network of parties because you've got those providing liquidity to its operation and services essential to its operation. You've got the lender of the share and you've got the purchaser of the share, you've got the short seller. But in between that, you've also got the use of various brokerage houses, and they're critical to making this system work because the shares which were lent out effectively return to the same owner at the end of the various agreements. So you've got five trading legs, in fact, a sale of the shorted stocks, a purchase of those stocks, the collateralised stock loan agreements to facilitate the short sale, and the hedging agreement, which allowed for the risk to be offset and you've got the return of the borrowed stock. So each of these legs involve the use of interdealer brokers 
to manage. And it might be more than one brokerage house that would be managing each of those legs. So you've got in play not only the lenders of the shares, the financial institutions providing the backing to it, the short seller and the buyer, but you've got the key component, which is the inter-dealer brokers who are effectively meshing this all together, which then allows the position which existed before any of the trades took place to be unwound and put back into the exact same position. The whole question, of course, is whether this was legal and that would be down to the individual laws in the particular jurisdiction at the time as to how this would be recognised. You've also got, for those who had less appetite for the risk, the investors themselves and those finance houses providing the financial backing. But they still face a risk and they're still exposed to the potential fallout from Cumex trading. there that Cumex, because of the way the UK tax system operates, doesn't actually impact the UK tax base, but it has still impacted the UK. How has that impact been felt? The short answer as to why it hasn't affected the UK in pure financial terms is because we don't have a withholding tax regime on the payment of dividends. But what we do have is the fact that London, being a large international finance centre, was used to facilitate much of the trading. Most of these entities are regulated by, among other things, the FCA, the Financial Conduct Authority. And I think the best way of looking at this is to take an example, which is not hypothetical, but it will illustrate the potential impact. Last year, there were two financial penalties imposed on London brokerage houses. And it was rather clever the way in which the FCA went about its work, because it tried not to unwind the murky world of Cumex trading, but rather use it as the grounds for which it was able to impose its sanctions. It was a UK-based corporate finance advisory and brokerage firm that offered diverse capital services to global clients. And for a period of many months, it executed over-the-counter equity trades to the value of £2.5 billion in Danish equities and 3.8 billion in Belgian equities. I mention the figures not to be alarmist, but just because it's a relevant feature to the sort of controls and systems one ought to have in place when one's dealing in that sort of large-scale value trading. These over-the-counter trades were linked to Carmex, and they had a circular pattern of high-value trades that seemed to be undertaken to avoid the normal need for payments and delivery of securities in the settlement process. In other words, they were unwound before the actual delivery up of the share certificates would ever be required. And so fundamentally, the transaction patterns ultimately showed no change in the ownership of the traded shares. So what was the reason for the trading? Well, fundamentally, the reason for the trading was to gain that tax advantage. Ultimately, the FCA fined the brokerage house a sum short of quarter of a million pounds for systems and control failings. And as I mentioned, that was the mechanism that the FCA used to be able to wield its power without having to ultimately face the daunting task of proving under UK law that Cumex trading itself is an unlawful activity. So what we can see there was that the failings that were criticised were not purely critical of Cumex trading, but that there ought to be a suspicion 
relating to that sort of transaction where there's no commercial basis other than the tax advantage. The FCA focused on the significant gaps and weaknesses in the company's financial crime systems and its internal controls and the adequacy of its due diligence, both customer due diligence and enhanced due diligence. That's one aspect of the impact that this sort of trading can have. But another was in relation to a UK case which is currently the subject of appeal, which was heard in the last couple of weeks, which was an appeal from the High Court in relation to SCAT, which is the Danish tax authority, that had brought a civil case seeking recovery of large sums of money to the tune of 1.9 billion euros from Solo Capital. This was through Comex trading schemes that were based in Denmark. We don't have that ruling yet. It will come out shortly. The High Court initially dismissed it on the basis that to recover tax losses, that ought to be done in the jurisdiction where the loss is faced, in other words, in Denmark and not in the UK. The argument on the appeal is, in fact, well, no, it's not a tax loss, it's out-and-out fraud. We'll see where that goes. So what we see here is a pattern, and it's a pattern of increased focus on the controls and any weaknesses in those controls and any failures in those controls, rather than the underlying trading itself. Well, that's a very thorough background. So how is it that these developments might impact listeners and what should businesses be doing about it? If we look just very briefly at the summaries, it will provide the highlight as to what you should be doing. Principle two is that a firm must conduct its business with due skill, care and diligence. And what the FCA found was that the companies that it looked at in relation to the brokerage on these trades had failed specifically to conduct customer due diligence. We're dealing with large-scale trading. Very often, the customers were based in foreign parts. And so the customer due diligence would be looking at who these entities were. And in many cases, you discover that the buyers, for example, looked like they'd had very little trading history and very little purpose to them. They failed to gather information to enable them to understand their customer's business, to undertake and document a risk assessment for each client, to complete enhanced due diligence, and to assess clients against categorizations in the Conduct of Business Sourcebook with the criteria set out there. Failures to conduct transaction monitoring during the purported trades and a failure to recognise numerous red flags. There were failures under Principle 2 to report payments to the FCA as required. And the third principle, a firm must take reasonable care to organise and control its affairs responsibly and effectively with adequate risk management systems. All of this effectively led to the overall thought that any suspicious transactions were simply not going to be identified. Now, with that background, it becomes easier to understand what you would need to do. So on the one side of the scales, you need to work out what your organisation's role or involvement in Cumex trading was. Which one of those parties were you or which agent for those parties were you? That would then allow you to understand whether you had active involvement in Cumex trading as a broker or an investor, a lender or a trader or as a custodian bank. That would also allow you to consider your other risks as to whether you had more of an indirect involvement for example, were some of your clients implicated? Or did you provide financing or lending facilities? Or did you loan the shares out yourself? 
So all of those would be into the past side. What about new requirements and obligations for all financial institutions? Because the one thing that I think Cumex has truly shown is that dividend arbitrage trading practices, which focus purely or solely on gaining an advantage in the tax system, are going to require very careful thought before you enter into them. So let's look at what you could be doing. First of all, I would suggest that an enterprise-wide risk assessment ought to be carried out to identify any form of dividend arbitrage trading. When was it? What type was it? Because Cumex is only one example of it. Come, come, which is another way of moving shares around to create the same benefit, but only on this occasion it was done before the dividend was paid out, hence why it's come, come with the dividend rather than with and without the dividend. Once you've identified an enterprise-wide risk assessment, you can look at product risk assessment and what I like to call product lifestyle. This would allow you to drill down on the elements involved. I should point out that it's been suggested that lawyers were involved approving some of these schemes. Well, you look at that very carefully because the lawyers would only give advice in relation to uh, the part that they were asked to advise on. And you, as the organisation involved in it, would need to have an overview as to the entirety of the arrangements. The most important, given the FCA findings, is to have a robust approach to KYC and customer due diligence and enhanced due diligence. Simply box-ticking exercises that might have been carried out in the past are just not going to be sufficient when you're dealing with trading volumes in the billions, when we're looking at the scale of the tax reclaims that were being made. As an organisation, anyone that's regulated would want this, but particularly so if you're involved in dividend arbitrage trading, is to ensure that your policies and procedures are thorough and robust and that you've got ongoing monitoring, including a robust approach to trade monitoring. Those are the general points that I would say. You've also got the FCA rules. You've got to take those together with the market abuse regulations. And when you see those two combined, they indicate that firms potentially exposed or involved in this sort of trading should both conduct extended due diligence on the relevant clients and transactions, but also that they should document any concerns and consider those for reporting to the FCA. Now, if you're involved in that trading on a historical basis, it's pretty clear, in my view, that a prudent UK firm with Cumex exposure would be considering a thorough internal investigation into its practices with a view not only to enhancing the effectiveness of its compliance programme, but also to make sure that it's managing its exposure and risk in the very best way possible. that having shined a light into the dark places, Cumex is probably not going to be rising from the ashes as a trading scheme anytime soon, not least because of the various tightening of loopholes in the European jurisdictions involved. What does the future look like for Cumex investigations and dividend arbitrage schemes more generally? It's a bit of crystal ball gazing. It's certainly true that forms of dividend arbitrage trading are ongoing today as we speak. Parties will be inevitably more careful. Put simply, taxation is based on a national basis and finance on a global basis. The question is, not necessarily what schemes are ongoing, 
But what does it really mean going forward? The tendency now for financial crime and tax evasion rather than tax avoidance to be found in the statute book is neatly summarised by the implementation of the Criminal Finances Act in 2017. That act does not have retrospective effect, but it does impose corporate criminal liability on any organisation that facilitates tax evasion. It's effectively a strict liability offence. And so the only way in which you can avoid liability where your organisation has been proven to facilitate a tax evasion scheme would be to demonstrate that you had put in place all reasonable measures to prevent such facilitation. So even if you were doubting for a moment all of the recommended methods and procedures that I'd highlighted, this alone would provide serious justification for making sure that there's a long overdue overhaul of those procedures and to actually test them in the real world to look at what it is that you're doing to ensure that your policies and procedures are safeguarding the future. This space isn't going to get any easier for those involved in it. And I think what we'll see eventually is some large-scale settlements carried out, which will probably involve the likes of the SFO and various equivalents in Europe and elsewhere. But that will take some time to come. At the moment, the wait-and-see policy of the UK prosecuting authorities tends to mitigate against any immediate action. But the FCA will do its work using its other powers without delving too deeply into the murky world of comments. One aspect that I think ought to be touched upon as well is the fact that the brokerage houses involved with the FCA to date had not really actively cooperated with them. It's a really difficult decision for any organisation to take on the one hand. Do you engage with the FCA or not and at which stage? But on the other hand, a failure to do so is likely to lead you more exposed in the event that they come looking at whatever type of trading you've been doing. So proactive cooperation with the authorities is likely to become relevant not only with the FCA, but also in the event that the Serious Fraud Office decides to conduct any investigations into specific COMEX allegations. For some time, it was seen as lawful to conduct this type of trading. But the German courts and being upheld on appeal have made it very clear that COMEX trading done in the way in which I've described in that example, would not be considered lawful. It's true to say that the loopholes were closed over a number of years and not very effectively to start off with. But now that they have been, it's very clear that the conduct being looked at has a criminal element to it. That cooperation that I talked about plays heavily in any charging decision. And we've all seen the tendency for the SFO to move down a slightly American route of deferred prosecution agreements and entering into financial deals with those it's investigating. That's only true where cooperation has taken place. We're seeing MLA requests, that is a mutual legal assistance request, coming in from EU authorities, mainly to HMRC, And that's caused search warrants to be effected in London with a large amount of documents being seized and being reviewed for the purpose of transmitting those documents to prosecuting authorities in Europe. 
Those criminal cases exist in Germany, Austria, and are starting to be looked at in other jurisdictions as well. As I mentioned, there were 500 or thereabouts letters that were sent out to suspects in the UK. That's an awful lot of suspects. And those were primarily traders and brokers and others that were involved in Cumex trading. Some of those letters, which were sent by the German prosecuting authorities, have ended up with European arrest warrants being issued and with those individuals being extradited to European countries. It's clear that Cumex has got a long way to go. We may well be back, Alice, in a year or so looking at this topic again. Fantastic, David. And unfortunately, that is all we've got time for in this week's episode. So thank you again, David, for joining us. You can find David through his email, David Stern, or one word, at 5sahstandrewshill.co.uk. You can also find David on LinkedIn. If you have any questions for me or for David, or any topics you'd like us to cover in a future episode, please do email us on taxingmatters at rpc.co.uk. We'd love to hear from you. RPC would like to thank podcast manager Josh McDonald. Original score was composed and produced by Insider Music, who also produced this podcast series. To hear a full, uninterrupted version of our podcast theme, go to Instagram at Insider Music and follow the link in bio. And of course, a big thank you to all of our listeners for joining us. If you like Taxing Matters, why not try RPC's other podcast offering, Insurance Covered, which looks at the inner workings of the insurance industry, hosted by the brilliant Peter Mansfield and available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast and our website. If you like this episode, please do take a moment to rate, review and subscribe and remember to tell a colleague about us. Thank you all for listening and talk to you again in two weeks.